banning all imports of Russian oil and gas and energy. That means Russian oil will no longer be acceptable at U.S. ports, and the American people will deal another powerful blow to Putin's war machine. We need to become energy independent. I've had numerous conversations over the last three months with our European friends of how they have to wean themselves off of Russian oil. It's just not tenable. It should motivate us to accelerate the transition to clean energy. This is a perspective that our European allies share and the future where together we can achieve greater independence. Russia's brutal war in Ukraine has shone a spotlight on the complex web of energy, climate, and geopolitical issues, and has arguably already changed the global energy landscape in profound and lasting ways. We examine those changes that are already underway on this episode of Political Climate, a bi-weekly podcast on energy and environmental issues in America and around the world, presented by the USC Schwarzenegger Institute, and in partnership with Canary Media. I'm your host, Julia Piper, and I wish we were recording this under better circumstances. Our last episode aired on February 24th, which was the same day that Russian troops invaded Ukraine and began a war that has already caused 2 million people to flee the country and many senseless deaths. The Kremlin has been met not only by overwhelming resolve from the Ukrainian people to defend their country, but also with an unprecedented response from the U.S. and Europe in the form of economic sanctions. The crisis has also surfaced a long-standing concern around the dependency of European countries on Russian gas, which makes up about 40% of EU gas consumption today. To make matters more complicated, most of that gas gets to Europe through pipelines in Ukraine. This, along with rising oil prices, helps explain why the US and the EU have been hesitant to include energy in the sanctions imposed to date. But here at home, at least, that's changing. Energy was initially exempted from Western sanctions. It was exempted from the SWIFT cutoff and also from central bank sanctions. But on Tuesday, March 8th, President Biden announced a ban on all imports of Russian oil and gas, a move that could have significant impacts for domestic and global energy markets, as well as U.S. consumers. All of this poses important questions for the future of renewable energy build-out in the context of energy independence and highly volatile oil and gas prices. Pundits on Twitter and opinion pages have rushed to argue that this type of dependency on Russia for its energy resources calls for increased oil and gas extraction here in the U.S., while others have argued this underscores the urgent need for building out more clean energy as a way to truly achieve energy security. The war in Ukraine could also put pressure on national priorities and derail or perhaps accelerate climate planning and goals all around the world. These are all important questions we have to grapple with, and we'll do so on this show in two parts. In the first half of the show, we'll take the U.S. perspective. I'll be joined by my co-hosts Shane Skelton and Brandon Hurlbut with the firm Boundary Stone Partners to discuss President Biden's recent ban on Russian oil and gas imports and the president's comments at the recent State of the Union, where he reiterated his plan for U.S. energy security and reaching climate goals. Then in the second half of the show, we have a guest joining us all the way from Brussels, Anka Gurzu, who is the newest correspondent for Cypher News. She'll give an on-the-ground accounting of how these energy and climate debates are unfolding from the EU capital. First up, let's start with the headlines here at home. Political Climate is supported by Fish Tank PR. Before green hydrogen was the topic du jour, before every energy analyst was debating the next two quarters of storage cost declines, the Fish Tank team was entrenched in the clean tech and sustainability sector. Fish Tank brings together industry expertise and a love for storytelling. They're dedicated to putting in the time on media outreach to deliver your company meaningful transactional coverage. 
Whether your organization is scaling as you go for your Series B or expanding globally and reaching new customers and partners, find out the difference Fish Tank can offer at fishtankpr.com forward slash canary. That's F-I-S-C-H tankpr.com forward slash canary. Political Climate is brought to you by MCE. A decade ago, Californians started a climate action movement and launched MCE, the state's first community choice energy provider. Community choice providers empower local communities to make their own decisions about the source of their electricity. Today, MCE offers nearly 40 Bay Area communities almost twice as much renewable energy as the state average. The power of MCE is about more than clean energy. It's the power of people over profit. Learn more at mcecleanenergy.org. We are recording this introductory segment to the show on the evening of Tuesday, March 8th. And so just earlier today, we heard President Biden formally announce that the U.S. will ban imports of Russian oil and gas. Now, the U.S. doesn't rely a ton on Russian imports of oil and gas, so it's questionable, you know, just how big of a blow this would deal to Russia's economy and slow their efforts uh, in attacking Ukraine. But nonetheless, it's significant, I think, symbolically. And, you know, I think shines a light more broadly on the U.S. energy system and where we get our energy resources from and where we want to invest going forward, both here at home and, and elsewhere. So I guess I want to get the top line takeaways from both of you. Brandon, what's your thought on hearing President Biden come out today saying no more imports of oil and gas from Russia and you know, Congress also stepping up saying they still want to pass legislation on this issue, too? It's amazing what is going on and, and how it has captivated the U.S. Uh, you know, Shane and I, we talk a lot on the show about LAFC soccer and was at the match the other night and the whole stadium doing you know, a moment of silence during the match, you know, for Ukraine and the number of Ukrainian flags like in the crowd, uh, you know, the polling indicates that Americans are paying very close attention to this and very supportive of Ukraine. And so I think President Biden needs to be seen as doing everything he can to oppose Russia short of like sending American troops uh, and getting into like a, a nuclear war with Russia, which this is a very serious and scary situation. I mean, there's so much at stake here. And the fact that energy is such a big part of that, you know, we have some big decisions to make as a country. Right now you're having this, you're seeing this debate play out. The oil and gas sector is lobbying for increased production. And I think we should dive into what that means here on the show, how long it takes to do that. The fact that Biden's not really standing in the way of that. There's been more drilling permits issued this year than under the first year of Trump, right? But the true way to do this, we are never going to find energy security at the bottom of a well. We're going to find it by producing our energy here with solar and wind. We have, don't have to rely on other countries you know, for that. Increasing heat pumps, electric vehicles, those are all things that we can control and reduce our dependence on these countries that are fossil fuel companies with nuclear weapons, which is what Russia is. Yeah, the nuclear weapon issue, <laughs> just sort of put that up and to the side, it was very alarming when Putin came out saying he'd put his uh, nuclear arms on alert. Mind you, it's hard to know what exactly that means, given, as I read, you know, our nuclear arms on all sides are apparently always on somewhat of an alert stage. But nonetheless, that really upped the ante in this entire war. And of course, President Zelensky has asked for the U.S. to help protect the airspace in Ukraine. But we resisted that request, given that that could trigger what some people think could be the Third World 
world war. <laughs> so yes, totally hear you on the stakes being incredibly high. And what is amazing is how energy is at the center of all of this. But to come back to your initial point there, Brandon, about oil and gas here in the U.S., I wanted to get Shane's thoughts on that. What are you hearing? You used to work in that sector, right? You were with the American Petroleum Institute at one point in your career before you worked in clean energy, Shane. So I'm curious what you're hearing when it comes to, again, that initial issue we're discussing here of the ban on U.S. oil and gas and what it means for production here at home. Yeah. So a few things I, I want to just touch on that, that Brandon hit too, you know, first and foremost, like an insane hat tip to the Ukrainian people. There's so much patriotism there. I mean, Putin thought this was going to be done a week ago. Um, I don't know that he's ever going to get that capital, whereas I would have assumed he would have had it, you know, the Saturday before last. So um, hat tip to them for just, you know. Shane, do you remember the movie Red Dawn? <laughs> I remember it existing. <laughs> yeah, They're like living it, you know, like we used to play that as kids, like running around, you know, and, and like now these Ukrainian, like they are defending their homeland, you know, with so much courage and valor. It's, it's incredible. It's, it's so incredible. And, and, and so inspiring on the Russian energy import issue. You know, if you would have asked me this a year ago, I would have said, these are global commodity markets. This is a stupid conversation. It doesn't really matter. But in this case, that's not true because that money is directly funding this insane, dangerous, violent, murderous behavior. And so to the extent that you can not pump American dollars into that country, which by the way, are worth a fortune because Russian currency is worth basically nothing now, to the extent that we can stop any American dollars from going in there, that's fantastic. On the energy independence piece, you know, I, I struggle with this because I think sometimes it can be yes and, right? I think you can actually zoom out and try to see the whole field. I think we need to become completely energy independent. And as Brandon said, we don't have to import solar. We don't have to import wind. We can build our electricity you know, grid on those resources and storage and other sort of emissions-free resources, and we can do a lot of great things. But it's also true that the world itself is not going to be completely fossil fuel free within the next couple of years. And so since we are, you know, the most responsible gas producer, for example, if we can displace some Russian gas and help our allies in Europe, you know, keep it together while they're being attacked, I think that would be really helpful. I'd like our country to get rid of our emissions as soon as possible. We're a rich country. We have advanced technology. We can do that. We need a plan, right? We need a 20, 30 year plan because the renewable technologies also require things that we import, right? We require rare earth minerals. We got to figure out how to source them. We got to figure out how to refine them. We got to figure out how to recycle them. In order to have the clean energy economy be completely sort of based in the US and to export those technologies, we still need to find out how to source those core minerals, even though it's not oil, gas, and coal. And so I think the answer has to be we need a clean economy and we need a pathway to do that. We got to figure out how to have a domestic supply chain that allows us to build a clean economy and export it to the world. But the truth is like people will still be using gas tomorrow when you wake up. And so to the extent we can help our allies now and have a plan to wean ourselves off of emitting fuels and, and be the exporter of clean energy technology in the future, that, that's what I would like to see You know, the plan be moving forward. And we can do that in a number of ways, but we, we need to have a plan. And I think we need to, to figure out what are we going to produce here? Where's our market? How are we going to help other countries get off of fossil fuels from dangerous adversaries? On the supply chain, Shane, one of our colleagues was making an interesting point today. It's like uh, right now, so many European countries are dependent on Russian gas and they're in danger of having, you know, if they refuse those imports, they literally do not have enough juice to power their homes and businesses. Uh, here right now, we're very dependent on China for our solar panels, for our rare earth minerals that you noted. So we could be like the European countries who are dependent on 
this awful country, Russia, who's an enemy, we could be in the same position with China, who is an enemy of the United States, if we don't build up the supply chain and increase our manufacturing base here. Yeah, I feel like that's the scary thing. And the I think that I struggled to talk about because there's so much pushback against clean energy still among denialists and, and others who have entrenched interests elsewhere. And they'll bring up that point. Isn't clean tech just as bad? And the reality is we do have a problem, but I think the only way we get ahead of it is by acting. We have to do that now. And I think that's a good reason why the Build Back Better Act was put together and so important to pass is because it has all kinds of support for domestic manufacturing of solar panels, of other types of technologies. Here in California, we had Lauren Sanchez on the podcast recently who works with Governor Newsom. And she was talking about Lithium Valley and being able to source battery components right here in the state of California. So all these themes I think we've talked about in past episodes are coming to a head right now. And the U.S. has to become more proactive on this. It's not going to happen on its own. And that's why I think policies like Build Back Better get pitched as these big social climate spending programs. But they're really innovation and investments in our future security programs. Like, I don't even know if they're being talked about the right way when you take a step back and think about what it would mean for cementing the U.S.'s leadership and securing our own clean energy supply chains. Because the transition is definitely happening one way or the other. The question is how much we'll be able to source on our own. Is it on our own or from friendly countries? But we certainly don't want to be reliant on China and the like, you know, moving into the, the next 10, 20 years. It is interesting to see the discussion go from find the cheapest product wherever it is in the world, this globalization mindset to a kind of shifting into this more protectionist world of, you know, whatever the cost, make it at home. Just it's an amazing kind of broader shift. And I think the way both Democrats and Republicans think about the ways of securing an economy. You know, there's a lot of free market supporters, but we're kind of learning that there's a limit to what you can achieve there. And it runs into security uh, prerogatives. I do want to mention one thing on the banning of Russian oil and gas here in the U.S. There are some people who think it's not the best idea, given that it will actually potentially increase the price of oil and Russian oil, which means that Russia can actually make a prettier penny on it from countries like China that will still buy the product. I think India is also continuing to buy some Russian oil and gas. And even Shell, an oil company that has put a stop to some of its oil investments in Russia and partnerships there, had to buy certain amounts of Russian product, even after they made that announcement because the markets are so tight and they just cannot meet certain needs. So I think it's going to be interesting to see just to the extent of which that actually deals a blow to Russia. But nonetheless, I think significant and something the U.S. can do. Well, on just the raw politics, it's interesting that it may set up more of a foil for President Biden, right? Because before with inflation prices, the political accusations were it's because Democrats are spending too much. That's what's causing you know, all this inflation. But now you can say it's because of this tyrant in Russia, and that maybe gives him a little bit more of a political high ground. Yeah. Didn't he call it the Putin price spike? He's branding it that way. And I think the stat that the White House used, if I'm not mistaken, is gas prices have gone up at the pump something like 75 cents since uh, Russia's attack on Ukraine. So they were already increasing, to be sure, but there's been a more recent spike in light of the turmoil in oil markets. So that is a real thing he can point to, even though it was happening prior to the attack. Yeah, I also think, Julia, before we sort of wrap this segment, I want to I want to point out that like we still need a plan. Like we're saying prices went up. We're not determining whether that's good or bad or why it happened. So like you could say, for example, if you wanted prices to go down, you should drill everywhere all the time, no matter what. I'm not saying that's what we should do. So there should be like a real discussion about what kind of economy we want to have 
and then what type of investments it takes and what types of rules there need to be and what type of actions you take to have that economy. Because I do think it's interesting that, you know, we say, let's transition to a clean energy economy and let's get off fossil fuels. And then the price of fossil fuels goes up and everyone's like, no, of course we should bring the price down and produce more. But that's like entirely inconsistent with the larger plan. So it would just seem like as a, as a country, we should think about what type of energy economy we want and then just sort of plow towards that. And there's going to be highs and there's going to be lows. But if we really believe the things that we've been saying, that when we get these technologies to scale, they're going to be cleaner, they're going to be cheaper, and they're going to save us a ton of money in healthcare costs and all those sorts of things, like that should be part of the plan, right? It shouldn't be a whiplash reaction every time someone's bills go up a little bit. That's a great point, Shane. So the last thing I want to touch on here in this opening segment is the State of the Union, because arguably that's what President Biden did, was laid out a vision for America's future, not only on energy, but that was one of the themes. He only mentioned, I think, climate twice. But the Building a Better America plan is arguably one of those plans to put the U.S. on a more strategic level. So, Brandon, what were your takeaways from uh, President Biden's speech that day? What did, what did you think about it? I think he did a really good job, and I think it's increased his numbers. Um, him being able to get an unfiltered message directly to people. A lot of people tuned into the State of the Union. You know, they hadn't been tuning in at the end of Obama and the end of you know Trump, but a lot of people watched that speech. And our message always gets convoluted with the press. And you know, right now the polling indicates that 81 percent of Americans think that there's been more job loss in the last year. We've actually had historic job gains. So that just shows you how this misinformation can cause political problems for Democrats. So I think he got to speak directly to people. I, I'm old enough to remember when we were trying to get anything in the State of the Union about climate. And so what he said, I think, was really important. I do think he could have leaned in even more. I'm wondering if we could do like a massive cash for clunkers program to start swapping out, you know, get to EVs faster. But uh, the other thing, too, just politically, I, I admire and respect the president for wanting to take the high ground and be sort of above the fray in sort of this political fight. But I do think there's a stark contrast that you can draw with, you know, some of the politics around this. You know, Russia and the Middle East have something in common. They are fossil fuel based economies and they are authoritarian regimes. And there is a significant part of the Republican Party in this country that supports that, that is still, you know, in bed with the fossil fuel companies and does their bidding. And you could see in the polling a year ago, Putin was more popular than Biden with Republican voters. And in a poll yesterday, Biden's approval rating is worse than Putin's with Republican voters. That's because of this Fox News and Donald Trump. You know, they were so cozy with Putin for the last several years. And the Republicans are not paying a political consequence for that. I think we could paint the picture that you have authoritarian regimes, fossil fuels, and a significant part of the Republican Party are all aligned. We should be against that as a country. You know, we, we should be pro-democracy, pro-energy dependence with clean energy. And I think you could rally the country around that. Yeah. What was that polling? I'm curious to know, do we know the numbers off, off the top? It was like Putin had an 18% favorability rating and, and Biden was at like 14%. I mean, 18 is too high for Putin, but I mean, 14% is not hard to beat no matter who you're polling against, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, let's remember, I don't feel like people have internalized this. The Ukrainian president, this guy that's so popular, is doing amazing stuff, asked the U.S. for military aid. And Trump wouldn't give it to him unless he dug up dirt on Joe Biden. That should be disqualifying. 
I forgot (laughs) about that. So many reasons to be disqualifying, right? But that should be at the top of the list right now. And Tucker Carlson saying openly, I'm rooting for Russia. Like, you know, I mean, this, I, it's baffling to me. Um, but I, I do think, you know, the president didn't do that in the state of the union. You know, he wanted to take the high ground, but I do think we need to draw a sharp contrast with where Republicans have been on Russia. This has been where the Trump and Fox news wing of the party, which is the dominant strain of the Republican party has been it's fossil fuel, Putin, you know, authoritarian, and we need to rally Republicans like Shane against that. So there's a weird divide, and I think it, it sort of ran away on the wrong side. So, so one part of the divide, you know, is that there are the hawkish Republicans, the ones that, you know, you would consider traditional Republicans back to the Reagan days. And you're seeing a lot of that in the U.S. Senate, especially right now as, as, we, as we face the situation. The other one, which I understand the, the sort of foundation of, but don't understand where it went, is that the party, and I would say the country, but the party certainly has become more populist in nature. And so I can see why people would say, we don't want to send our children to Eastern Europe to fight a war. I get that. I totally understand that. What I don't understand is how you extrapolate that to, so therefore, you know, Putin should win and we should be done with this and just move on because who cares? Like I can see the front end saying we need to find a better way to deal with dictators like Putin rather than sending American teens all over the world, you know, every couple of years. But certainly the second part of that is where I'm totally baffled too, Brandon, like some of that. You know, you say, oh, well, we don't want to send our troops over there. I get that. And they're like, so go Putin. And they're like, well, I don't really get that part. And so I think it's <laughs> it's odd and it's slippery and I don't fully grasp it or I don't really partially grasp it, honestly. I think the only thing we can think of or I can think of is it's about politics at the end of the day. It's like this is just another opportunity to get political points. And it doesn't really matter what the implications are geopolitically or whatever. It's just a, a way in our partisan society to attack the other side. And I wonder if people who are making this point are looking any further beyond that. But I do want to get back to the substance here of Build Back Better or what was formerly known as Build Back Better. President Biden referred to it in the State of the Union as the Building a Better America plan. We'll remember that Joe Manchin, Senator Manchin, said he was a no on Build Back Better and wanted something different. There was talk of revising it, making a new plan. I'm not sure if the new name is quite enough of a new plan for Senator Manchin, but he has come out in recent days saying there is something he thinks is workable. Shane, in the final minutes of this part of the conversation, just walk us through what Manchin said in recent days and what the bill could be shaping up to be. Yeah. So, you know, you can read what I'm about to say is entirely just gnarly optimism, or you can actually look at it as objective truth. And I think the truth is probably somewhere in between. But what Manchin actually said, like what he said was, I could see, you know, a package where we deal with corporate tax reform, drug pricing reform, and we do the climate and energy stuff. But I still want to see half of the money raised go to deficit reduction. Now, if you just heard that in a hallway and you're a reporter, that's just a list of things, right? It doesn't really have any meaning. It doesn't really have any value. But if you actually go back to the numbers that the Congressional Budget Office put together and that the Joint Committee on Taxation put together that are absolutely a required piece of any reconciliation package, you can't bring a bill to the floor without those scores and ensuring that they comply with reconciliation rules. What it actually does is that $813 billion of revenue comes from corporate tax reform and $340 billion come from drug pricing reform. So that gets you to just over $1.1 trillion. The climate provisions and the energy provisions in the bill, they total $550 billion. So you could literally do exactly what Manchin said. You could do just corporate reform and drug pricing reform. 
you can do everything in the bill for energy and climate and have exactly half the money left for deficit reduction. And if I'm looking at this package, you know, as Joe Manchin, that's a pretty darn good deal. I don't have to walk back anything I've said in the past about inflation. I don't have to walk back anything I've said in the past about deficit reduction. I can say I made this great deal where everyone got what they wanted and we reduced the deficit and addressed inflation in that way, you know, go me. So you can very well see that package being reasonable and lest people forget, there are things in there that Joe Manchin very much likes. And there are things in there that are very good for West Virginia. I'll give three quick examples. There's a hydrogen production tax credit. If you track Joe Manchin's Twitter feed or anything going on in West Virginia, you'll see that hydrogen is a very important part of their future. And that credit would be incredibly lucrative. Uh, there's an expanded 45Q credit. That's the um, carbon capture and sequestration credit. That would be a much richer credit if Build Back Better or the tax provisions of that bill were to pass. That's very good, obviously, for West Virginia and other fossil fuel regions. And then you have the 48C manufacturing tax credit. So that originated under the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act, and they brought it back for the reconciliation tax package. But the difference is that now they say half of that money has to go to states uh, in oil and gas producing regions. So that's a lot of money, you know, again, going to West Virginia for clean energy manufacturing. So, you know, the math works. Uh, he has incentive to do this. But I want, I want to throw a question to Brandon before we wrap, which is like, what should people be doing? Like attacking Joe Manchin doesn't work. Is it the White House that needs to, to lean in? Is it other senators and colleagues? Like, what is the best path forward? If you were in charge of everything or you were running the White House, what would your plan be for getting this to 50 votes, including Joe Manchin's and getting it across the finish line? How would you tell people that to activate? Yeah, first of all, I'm just, you know, confirming that I, I think Shane is right about where this is headed. Uh, my conversations with members of Congress and, and the administration is they want to wrap up appropriations. There's the bipartisan like innovation bill, the one that's like incentivizing semiconductors and such. They're going to get that done. There's some hope for uh, EV, the, for, for post office fix. Uh, Biden can't fire the governors of the Postal Service that have put out this contract that is like 90% internal combustion engines. But if the Congress appropriates money, you know, for EVs, I mean, this is insane. We're talking about, you know, getting off the fossil fuel. We, we have the Postal Service has to replace, you know, hundreds of thousands of vehicles that drive in a defined area. It's like perfect for EVs. The total cost of ownership completely pencils out on these. And so we need to get that right. And then they're going to tackle this framework that Manchin, you know, has suggested. And so it looks like the timing around that can be April to May where they can land on something. And I think to answer your question, Shane, I mean, the, the White House is doing as much as they can. Remember, this is Joe Biden's plan. He doesn't need to be convinced, right? They're, they're doing everything they can to make this happen. He ran on this. He promised he would make it happen. He's highly incentivized to make it happen. I think it's just to continue to put public pressure on the benefits of clean energy, what this means for our energy security here, and the timing of this with Ukraine is so you know relevant. And, you know, for the activists around climate, the IPCC report just came out again, like two weeks ago, shows things are happening even faster than they thought again. And so there's the job creation, the way that this can fit into, you know, the economy right now, creating jobs, reducing costs, fighting inflation. I think it's just continuing to do everything we can to build public support for this, which it already exists, but it's got to be really focused on mansion in a way that, you know, is persuadable to him. Uh, so I think it's more surgical than, than anything. My question back to you, Shane, is 
on the corporate tax reform part. So you have the revenue raiser on that part to pay for this that Mansion wants. But Cinema has said she's opposed to that. So how do you square the circle then in the Senate between Mansion and Cinema on Mansion's proposal? Yeah, I mean, for what it's worth, she's also been opposed to the drug pricing reform, as I understand it. Um, so I don't know the answer to that question, but I get the sense that we all get the sense, I think, over the last six months that if Mansion's a no vote, then it's dead. There's really nothing to talk about. So my view would be like, get to a package that he can vote for and then work with Senator Sinema and anyone else who might have consternation and, you know, kind of go from there. I'm not saying she'd vote for it. I'm not saying she wouldn't. I have no idea, you know, what, what her view is on that. But I do think that he has been the primary bottleneck. So if you can get him excited about voting on a package, I think you've solved at least, you know, a large part of X, but no guarantees. That's for sure. Yeah, to key out something Brandon said, though, I think I tell people every day there's other things you can do. You can sign letters. You can pay attention to what industry groups are saying, if they have action days, et cetera. But also just going to work every day and showing that the clean energy sector is strong and pulling the data together on the benefits like the carbon offsets, but also the electrons we're putting on the grid, the clean power, you know, finding more information on just how big of an industry this is bolsters the entire case of what we're saying today. There's actually a US DOE census going around right now on people working in clean energy. So highly recommend people look that up, take the survey. Good data shows what the industry is doing and helps policymakers make policy. So that is actually something, sounds tangential, but something I think we can do to prove the case that clean energy is a key part of the U.S. economy. It's a job driver and it's now part of our national security infrastructure. So sharing that data, going to work every day and continuing to advance this industry every little bit, it all very much helps. Yeah, and, and one last thing I would say to Julia is a lot of people are frustrated and rightfully so saying like, what can we do? Right. What can we do? We're not the federal government. What can we do? Well, I was talking to our colleague Pete this morning who runs our transportation practice and he made a really good point, which is what you can do if you don't want to pay $5 for gas, is make your next car an EV. Like, you don't need the president for that. You don't need Senator Manchin for that. And despite what you might hear in the news, they don't all cost $150,000. There are affordable EV models in the market. So what can Congress do to bring your gas prices down? Probably nothing, maybe something. But what can you do? Just don't use gas. Pretty straightforward. So I would encourage people who are frustrated with the government, rightfully so, you know, so start to make some of the decisions in your own lives that can help protect you from some of the bad decisions that, that our government makes you know, from time to time. With that in mind, we'll turn now to our interview with Anka Gerzu, a reporter who's been covering clean energy and climate change from Europe to hear about how the crisis is playing out there and affecting markets in the European Union that will have ramifications here at home too. Political Climate is supported by Fish Tank PR. Fish Tank PR is a public relations and marketing firm that was listed as one of Inc. Magazine's 5,000 fastest growing businesses in America last year. As the cleantech and sustainability sectors have boomed, so has Fish Tank. But unlike many large PR firms, the Fish Tank team has been immersed in cleantech for more than a decade, delivering results for clients ranging from renewable energy producers and software platforms to battery manufacturers and green builders. From PR and digital marketing to content writing, the team at Fish Tank helps you develop a strategy of bringing your work to not only wider audiences, but the right audience. They'll listen and learn about the work you're doing on the ground as part of the climate tech revolution and translate that into visibility and strong narratives for your projects. To learn more about Fish Tank's approach to clean tech and services, go to fishtankpr.com forward slash canary. That's F-I-S-C-H-TankPR.com forward slash canary. Political Climate is brought to you by MCE. 
MCE was California's first community choice energy provider. For more than 10 years, MCE has helped communities across the Bay Area source significantly more renewable energy compared to the state's average. Nearly 40 communities are now a part of MCE, and together they're leading on climate action for a brighter future. But the power of MCE is about more than clean energy. It's the power of people over profit. It's community power. MCE's efforts on climate justice and energy innovations have helped vulnerable populations qualify for programs like electric vehicles, energy storage, energy savings, and more. By building and buying more renewable energy, MCE puts the power back in your hands. We all deserve a fossil-free future that combats climate change and prioritizes energy equity. Learn more and take action at mcecleanenergy.org. Anka Gurzu has spent eight years covering energy and climate change, including five years with Politico Europe. Now she's at Cypher, a new online publication backed by the Bill Gates organization Breakthrough Energy. Listeners will recall that we recently had Cypher's Amy Harder on the show to discuss the launch of this new climate news initiative, as well as her reporting on the challenges to achieving net zero emissions. Certainly those challenges are front of mind today, as the Western world scrambles to reduce its dependence on Russian energy products. Anka is covering the crisis in Ukraine from Brussels, with a focus on what the war means for the EU's energy transition. Anka, thank you for coming on Political Climate. Can you start by telling us what you're seeing unfold in the news today from where you sit in Europe? Hello, and thank you for having me. I'm glad to join this conversation I'm based in Brussels in Belgium, as you've mentioned, and in short, I would say things are pretty tense here. This is the capital of the European Union, so basically we're surrounded by all the main EU institutions, which are in walking distance from each other. This is also the headquarters of NATO, and as you know, since uh, Russia invaded Ukraine, uh, things have been pretty tense. Um, it's been one emergency meeting after another in light of the war. And today, specifically, uh, European Union leaders um, approved more sanctions against Russia and Belarus uh, on oligarchs and the banking sector, and of course, not on the energy sector, which is the, the topic that we're discussing today. It has been incredible, we have to say, just how swiftly the U.S., in conjunction with the European Union and other companies and entities around the world, have acted and put sanctions in place. You mentioned on the banking uh, institutions. It's been quite remarkable and I think a testament to the um, alliances that exist there. However, as you just noted, the energy sector in particular in the European Union is a tricky topic. That's because the EU gets a lot of its uh, gas and oil supplies from Russia. Can you just outline why exactly is it so hard for the European Union to go after Russian energy supplies? Sure. So as we said, even though the energy sector is not part of those sanctions, it's very much top of mind and top of the agenda here for European leaders. Uh, And that's because the invasion has really left the European Union in a very vulnerable and and eye-opening situation, since, like you mentioned, it's so heavily relying on Russian fossil fuels. Um, just to put things in, in context, the European Union imports 90% of the gas it consumes, and Russia contributes more than 45% uh, of these imports. Now, of course, this percentage differs um, across uh, European Union member states. Some are more relying than others. But 
there's also 25% of oil imports that the European Union uses that comes from Russia, as well as 45% of its coal imports also come from Russia. So needless to say, the dependency, um, it's really, really, um, really, really high. Has that always been the case or has there been a movement toward getting more Russian oil and gas product in recent years that kind of made this situation even more tricky, would you say? I would say that's a complicated question to ask. Depends where in time you want to look. So if you look at the general reliance and partnership, let's say, that the European Union has had with uh, Russia when it comes to uh, gas, for example, this reliance goes back to the Cold War when uh, Russia started building this massive gas infrastructure uh, that was basically constructed to deliver a gas to uh, Eastern European countries, which were part of the Soviet Union, or to satellite states uh, and other parts of Europe. And and it's a relationship that worked even during uh, that Cold War, so it was maintained. Now, of course, in the, let's say, in the last 15 years or so, there's been several disruptions uh, to Russian gas supplies to Europe as a result of growing tensions, let's say, between uh, Russia and Ukraine. And the most recent uh, one was in 2014 when Russia took over Crimea. And that was also a very big uh, wake-up call uh, for the European Union. And at the time, there was also big plans um, in place to try to reduce this dependency, um, acknowledging that the European Union uh, cannot remain um, dependent um, on, um, on, on Russia. Now, what has happened between then and now, if we look at statistics, if we, if we look at import levels, is that actually the European Union has increased its dependency uh, on Russian gas, which of course uh, adds to the problems it is facing today and does not leave it in any better situation than it was before. That's super helpful context. So, Fast forward to today, the European Union has released a guidance to national governments, I think as recently as Tuesday, and we're recording this here on a Wednesday. And that guidance is intended to help the EU wean itself off of Russian gas by no later than 2030, in one statement I saw. So can you tell us a little bit about this strategy? What is this plan that's coming together right now, uh, led by the European Commission to ultimately support getting off of Russian oil and gas? Yes, that was indeed the big announcement uh, from Brussels this week uh, in the energy sector. The European Commission released this detailed plan, as you mentioned, and the main message there was the EU can cut most of its reliance on Russian uh, gas by the end of the year if it implements the measures set out in that plan. And I think we can come back to this, but this will fundamentally be the hook, the implementation but this plan is basically meant to ser serve as guidance to national governments. And this plan was kind of already in the works before the war started. Um, and it was more focused at the time on the current uh, energy price crisis, which, as we know, has led to a huge uh, increase in gas prices affecting uh, the bills of consumers. Now, the commission had to initially postpone the announcement in light of the war, it had to revamp the whole strategy to focus it more on cutting ties with Russian gas. And basically, the strategy has two pillars. There's the short term and there's the long term. In the short term, the main message is that the European Union needs to find new sources of gas to replace Russian imports. And here, what we're talking about is a liquefied natural gas from other partners like the United States and Qatar, 
which already increased their share of um, exports to the European Union. The European Commission is also calling for a faster buildup of green hydrogen uh, domestically, which should also help. Um, and the European Commission will also propose new measures uh, to make sure, for example, that gas storages across EU member states are filled faster uh, to serve as backup. In the long term, what the plan is proposing is a scale up of renewable energy and an increase in energy savings measures. So, for example, what that would mean uh, practically is introduce more heat pumps in people's homes to reduce reliance on gas-fired um, systems for heating. So basically, in essence, the second part, and, and which is very important, is to go much faster with the European Green Deal. And the European Green Deal is the European Union's uh, flagship project for cutting its emission and becoming uh, the first climate-neutral continent by 2050. So basically, with all of these measures, the European Commission is saying that the EU can cut two-thirds of its gas reliance on Russia within a year, which if we look at those numbers, it's they sound pretty remarkable. Again, the, the, the bottom line will be that for this to happen, all these measures have to be put into force. So it sounds like a patchwork situation here. And you summarized that, I think, quite well in a recent piece for Cypher that simply stated an emerging question for the EU is if it will use this crisis as a springboard toward cleaner energy or get hooked on gas from elsewhere. I guess, absent this recent crisis, was Europe making progress on its energy transition to the extent that maybe we in the U.S. Uh, were thinking that it is? It does seem like there's broad public support, um, but were things moving as quickly as maybe it appeared? Well, first of all, indeed, your, your observation is correct. At this moment, the European Union is scrambling to find a solution to protect itself in case in the short term uh, Russia would decide to turn off the tap. Um, on its gas delivery. So it does feel like a patchwork uh, measures. It does feel like a Band-Aid for now. And the other thing I would like to note that this plan that was released um, earlier this week, it is indeed more of a guidance and it doesn't in itself at this moment include anything new. It's more riding on this momentum that we're seeing right now, this crisis that's uh, eye-opening for many European states but the point is that it's more of a repackaging of existing measures that are supposed to serve as a nudge for European countries to move faster. And then to answer more directly your question, of course, even before this crisis, the European Union had the European Green Deal um, in the works. Now, the European Green Deal is a massive project that consists of several legislative proposals and most of it is at that stage of legislative proposals. A lot of these parts in the European Green Deal still have to be uh, negotiated, approved by lawmakers, and that's a very convoluted decision-making process. What is happening now is what we're seeing is that as these legislative proposals are going through the European Parliament and the European Council, and I won't go into the details of how it works because it's very complicated, um, what we're seeing now is an opportunity um, that leaders are taking in saying, we need higher targets, we need more ambition, we need to go even faster. So at the political big level, this is what's happening. So you could you could argue that maybe one result from this will be that indeed will the European Union will set even higher um, ambition um, for itself. So I want to bring in the US for a moment here. 
President Biden announced just on Tuesday that America will ban Russian oil and gas, noting that U.S. allies may not be able to make the same step at this time. But I'm sure this will have impacts around the globe, given this is an international market. So how is that announcement being perceived and received in Europe? The first thing that we're seeing is that oil and gas prices are increasing even more. And President Biden's decision to ban Russian oil and gas is a significant um, foreign policy move in the sense that it shows the United States is ready to amp up sanctions further if needed. Um, And while oil and gas are part of an international market, the truth is also that the United States is not a big importer of Russian crude. And of course, the United Kingdom and Canada have also announced uh, similar bans but again, they are not heavily relying on, on Russian oil and gas. Um, but the other thing that I would say, that doesn't mean that Russia is not struggling um, at the moment, because the main, let's say, idea behind these bans is that the, the main argument that keeps repeating is that this is where Russia gets its cash from and the West should stop financing uh, basically the war. Like this is the connection that's that's being made. But Russia is... Uh, also struggling at the moment. We've seen many Western uh, energy companies announcing that they will cut ties with Russia and Russian oil is already struggling to find uh, buyers on the market. So, uh, but of course, for the European Union, it will be a very hard um, move to make to, to propose and to go forward with such sanctions. Right. So I'm hearing consumers will have to brace for higher prices here in the U.S. as we're seeing all over the news as well, but certainly in Europe where, as you just said, you know, the reliance is there today and there's no real way around that at this particular moment in time. So in the context of Russian oil and gas making its way to Europe, a lot of our audience may have heard of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. This is a pipeline coming from Russia into Europe, and it's almost complete, if not fully complete, as of this recording. But it has been put on pause, if not indefinitely stalled right now. And so what is the future that you see for that pipeline? Was it critical for Europe? Can they live without it? And that's also a question that's come up here in the U.S., not that we could tell the EU what to do, but there's been varying debates around to what extent a president should weigh in on whether that pipeline should exist, given the security risks for Western allies. So what can you tell us about Nord Stream 2 and what it means for this entire debate here with the future of Russian oil and gas? Sure. So Nord Stream 2, as of now, has been put on ice. And that decision came from the German government, which was hugely significant, considering that the German government has been its main supporter. Um, The German government has initially always said it's just a commercial project meant to link um, Russia to Germany, uh, adding, let's say, doubling the existing Nord Stream uh, pipeline capacity. But of course, uh, within the European Union, you had the Eastern European countries um, that always flagged it as a geopolitical risk. And why is that? Because through Nord Stream 2, Russia's goal would have been to circumvent Ukraine, which is now a massive uh, transit country for Russian gas into Europe. So Russia's goal would be to divert, let's say, more of its shipments directly into Germany, which needs this gas because they're relying more on gas as a transition fuel to a a cleaner future um, and send less of its gas uh, through Ukraine. Now, 
it's for years, this has been, um, as, you, as you just mentioned, there's been U.S. intervention. There's been uh, some previous sanctions during the construction period um, as well. But there's always they've always found a way to actually build it. It's built. Now it's on ice. I am not a predictor of the future to say what will happen or not. But now it looks very unlikely that this pipeline will ever come to be. And that means that the billions of uh, euros that were uh, poured into this pipeline will just end up being becoming uh, a stranded asset. Interesting. Yeah. And just for reference, anyone who wants to look at a map, this is a pipeline that goes, if I'm not mistaken, underneath the Baltic Sea and avoids different countries and, and land masses. And that's how I guess they would go around using the Ukraine and other countries to pass through. Is that correct, Anka? That is correct. That is correct. And throughout its construction, while it's just going through water, it is crossing the territorial waters of a couple of um, Nordic countries like Denmark and Sweden. And during the construction um, period, there's been several attempts, uh, let's say, from these countries to slow down the, the, the construction and the regulatory approval that's needed um, for each segment of this pipeline that crosses through the different territorial waters of these countries. So there's just been a lot of political play behind this um, over the last years, and they got so close. But it's clear that this war and Russia's invasion of Ukraine has made Germany uh, make a U-turn on this, and that's extremely significant. Knowing that no one has a crystal ball, um, but you're talking to leaders, I guess, what is your sense of what we should watch for and even expect in the coming weeks and months as this starts to go from an immediate response to maybe a broader discussion around future planning for, for energy? Right. I think what will be interesting to see in the next uh, weeks and months is how much of these plans will be reflected, let's say, in decisions that countries take at the national level to make it work. So, for example, what I'm trying to say here is that if we look at some of the reactions so far, Germany, for example, which is highly dependent um, on Russian gas, it gets about half of its gas needs from Russia. Their first reaction was to say, we're going to build two new LNG plants. Um, so then obviously there's some concern there. What will happen? Is that the right move? Um, to just shift to a different source of gas. But of course, they've also very much said, we're also going to uh, push forward our renewable energy targets and try to accomplish them faster. So it's a mixed, um, it's a mixed message, uh, but one that very much shows a very significant shift for German uh, policy. The other thing to notice is that as we're responding, as the European Union is responding to this crisis, what will be the costs, let's say, both for Europe's ambition, but also for consumers, as you've already mentioned. One thing that uh, European Commission leaders have said, basically, just to paraphrase, is that if you need to use coal for the moment to uh, loosen this reliance on Russian gas, that's okay. And of course, that's a tricky thing to say at the moment, especially for some countries in Eastern Europe, such as Poland, which are relying massively still on coal. Because then it would be important to make sure that the short-term measures don't get prolonged into medium and long-term measures and that there is indeed a short-term use for coal if countries choose to do that, but that doesn't spill over into um, a new strategy from some member states that might undermine the wider green energy transition. 
So just in that vein, we do know that uh, Germany was making a transition off of nuclear power, which is a source of clean power, but they had other reasons that they wanted to transition away from it. Do you see this, uh, these recent events changing the way that Europe thinks about nuclear energy? Nuclear energy has always been a very, very contentious uh, issue in the European Union. Germany, indeed, even though it's finding itself in this um, crisis as well, they've been adamant that they're not going to stop the phase down of their uh, nuclear power. However, when you look at other countries like Belgium, for example, where I am, there's discussions, let's say, uh, right now to expand the lifespan of existing nuclear power plants to help the energy system cope. And these countries are neighbors. So this shows very different um, responses to this one source um, of energy. So to answer your question, it really depends initially some experts were commenting that that this would probably allow for more nuclear energy to to be part of Europe's energy system. But in light of also what we are seeing and hearing for what's happening in Ukraine and nuclear, Ukraine's nuclear power plants, there's also a lot of fear involved about um, the risk, the risks that are involved with this. And as I mentioned, this has always been a very contentious topic in Europe, and I don't see this uh, changing anytime soon. Right. So as you alluded to there, Russia has taken control of at least two nuclear power stations in Ukraine. That includes the Chernobyl power plant, which is home to one of the world's worst man-made disasters back in the 1980s. They've also taken control of one of Europe's largest nuclear power plants. The International Atomic Energy Agency has said at various points that despite the takeover and various disruptions that it saw no critical impact on safety. However, this is very much an evolving situation. I think communications have been lost to some of the power plants. There's fighting taking place in the immediate vicinity. There have been fires on site. So while there is this active debate about how Europe's going to obtain its power in future, this low carbon power that can generate on site and not require imports, and nuclear is very much a part of that, it is certainly a very challenging discussion to be had in this particular moment as we see these nuclear power plants threatened in the context of war. Well, Anka, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you taking a, a step away from your deadlines and the work that you do for Cypher to speak with us. Really appreciate it. Thank you very much. It was my pleasure. And that brings us to the end of this episode. Thanks everyone so much for listening. While you're here, please hit subscribe if you haven't yet. You'll catch all of our episodes that way. Also, we'd love it if you could leave a review, especially on Apple Podcasts. This helps us reach more people, grow the show, hear from you, the topics that you would like us to cover. So really appreciate it if you take the time just to leave us five stars and a comment as well. You can also reach us on Twitter at poly underscore climate. We're on Instagram at poly underscore climate as well. And remember to subscribe to the Canary Media newsletter so you can catch all of our fresh episodes. We are distributed in partnership with Canary Media and supported by the USC Schwarzenegger Institute. Thanks to our editor, Kyle McDonald, and to our producer, Maria Virginia Alano. We'll be back again in a couple weeks. <laughs>